You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. Um, over the last few weeks, then you will have missed the first two parts of this little Christmas series that we're doing called Tis the Reason. Terrible name, great series, I hope. And the idea is that it's the season to be jolly, but what's the reason to be jolly? And so we're thinking deeply, thinking theologically about what Christmas actually means and trying to understand the implications of Jesus's birth. And um, If you want to catch up on any of those, then you can listen to our talks on our podcast. You can Google that and I'm sure you'll find it. And I encourage you to sort of come with your brain switched on for thinking about these things. I'll try and give us some ideas and then I want to encourage you to sort of go away and think about it. And what I can't tell really is whether the last two talks have been really interesting or really boring. I don't know, but I'm doubling down today, basically. I'm banking on them being interesting. And so uh, over the last little bit, we've had three different points on what does Christmas tell us about God and three different points on what does Christmas tell us about humanity. Today, we're doing 10 things that Christmas tells us about the world. How does that sound? All right. We're gonna, so get your Bibles out if you've got one. Get a notepad maybe if you want to list these 10 things or a phone or something so you can note them down. If you want to think, what does Christmas tell us about the world? And I'm gonna read to us the passage we've been reading again over this series, which is John 1, 1 to 14. So this is John 1, 1 to 14. If you've got a physical Bible, it's about two thirds of the way through. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Um, Some of you will know that I had a very, very brief um, stint doing a bit of orienteering. 
and uh, one time, uh, I've probably told you about this, I, I got a little bit lost doing orienteering, ended up having to hitchhike my way back to the start of the orienteering course, ended up accidentally coming third in a county competition. Uh, we've all done it, you know, it happens. And um, after that, I had a bad experience, so I thought, I'll quit orienteering, I won't do that anymore. Um, but instead of that, I started thinking about, uh, like, what is it that we do when we go orienteering? And uh, like, what are we actually trying to do? And one of the things I realized from my short career is that one really important thing is landmarks, right? If you've ever done this, you know that you need to find particular things on a map that tell you where you are. It might be like the corner of a forest or there's a high point, a rock up somewhere or a big tree or whatever it is. And you, you, these things are really important to find because they give you a sort of start point, but the moment you set off, you're gonna need to know where you are. And the, the point really, the key, is that if you don't know where you are, then you can't possibly know where you're supposed to be going. You're just going to like blunder around, head off, hoping that you head in the right direction. You need to know where you are though, if you're going to know where you're going. And I think that's true about life as well. That if we don't know where we are, then we've got no chance of knowing where we're going. If we want to live a life of purpose, then we're going to need to think deeply about the world that we live in to think how should we respond to this world. And that's why we're going to look at these 10 different things from John's Gospel, 10 things about the world to help us understand where are we so we can know where we're going. And the first one, number one, is that the world was created. The world was created. Now, we've spent quite a lot of time in this series looking at the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, there are a couple of different stories about the creation of the world. Um, but those stories, when they were written, they weren't, uh, they weren't the only stories about how the world was created. In fact, there were hundreds of other stories about the creation of the world. And uh, in general, all of those stories had something in common, which was that the narrative was all about conflict. Let me give you a bit of an example. So one really common story, very popular uh, at the time, was called the Enuma Elish. And in that story, the god Marduk, he's called, he fought against the goddess Tiamat and her armies of monsters. Sounds like a brilliant film. I would definitely watch that. And uh, she fought, they fought and eventually Marduk won. Tiamat was defeated and the world was made out of her corpse. Pretty gross, right? Uh, but that's the story. And that's an example of, of many different stories in which conflict happens. These gods are fighting or raging and somewhere along the line from their blood or corpse or leftover bits and pieces, the world came into being. But the Bible tells a radically different story about how the world was created. In that passage I read, it says, in the beginning was the word, that is Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it says, through him, all things were made. And so John paints a picture of an intimate relationship. In part one, we call it Trinity. This family inside God of love. And out of that intimate overflow of love comes the creation through Jesus. So the world was created but not out of conflict, out of love. That was the first thing. The second thing is the world was waiting. The world was waiting. Um, John carries on. And in verse six, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's a different John. 
It's not that one either. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He was not the light, he came only as a witness. And then he says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This little extract from John's gospel uh, is the sort of four, the start of the fourth book of the New Testament. But chronologically, I think it comes right at the very start of the New Testament, right at the start of the story about Jesus. If you were to flip back a bit into the Old Testament, it finishes with a list of 13 or so prophets. And all of them are talking about the experiences of God's people in exile, struggling and waiting for something to happen. It ends with a book called Malachi. And then the story sort of goes dead. And there's uh, three, four, maybe hundreds of years waiting for something to happen. And then John's narrative bursts onto the scene. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And from there, the story accelerates and continues. There's Jesus's birth and his life and his death and resurrection and ascension. But all of that follows this period of waiting for something to happen. The the Bible isn't really a story, as it were, about people or about the world or anything like that. It's a story about God. And we see that story play out through people's responses to what God does. And that's true as well for each one of us and for our world. We're waiting for God to do things. We should be people who wait for the Lord to act so that people can see him in our responses to what he does. That's number three. Uh, That's number two. Number three is the world is complicated. The world is complicated. So there's this moment in John in that passage that I find quite confusing. Uh, so John says this, he says, the world was made through Jesus, we've got that. And when he says that, he means everything, not just earth, everything, the universe, because he says nothing was made without him. Okay, we've got that. Everything was made through Jesus. Then he says the world, i.e. the universe, didn't receive Jesus. Okay? And then he says in verse 12, but those who did receive him, dot, dot, dot. Well, that seems a bit strange to me because if everything was made through Jesus and everything didn't receive him, then who would be left to receive him? I think it's a a picture that John is painting of the complexity and nuance of the world. There's a sense in which each of us, all of us, every part and particle of creation has chosen not not to receive Jesus in the way we've lived and even in our nature, as it were. But there's also a sense in which some of us have chosen him. Some of us are trying to, bit by bit, choose him more and more. There's a complexity to the world where it's sort of like certain parts of the world are part of God's kingdom and some are still waiting to be and some are kind of are and some kind of aren't and there's just a a complexity going on and I want to encourage you not to try and simplify something which is complicated. The world isn't entirely good or bad. People are not entirely good or bad. Situations are not entirely good or bad. You are not entirely good, unfortunately, but thankfully you're not entirely bad either. The world is complicated. That's the third thing. Take a breath. We're three in. How are we doing? Great. Great. 
Are we keeping up? Can anybody remember the three things? <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Brilliant. Point four, the world is owned. Uh, I've got two friends um, who both have brothers called Andy. But when they talk about their brothers, they don't call them Andy, they call them our Andy. Right? And one of them calls them our kid. That's like their thing. And uh, at first I thought it was an R. It was like, R Andy. Who's R Andy? And, and then I eventually figured out that this was like a way of talking about their brothers in a sort of intimate way. What they were saying was, there's lots of Andys out there. You're one of them, but you're not our Andy. Our Andy is ours. He's, he's our family's Andy. I don't think my family call me our Andy, but they could do. You can call me our Andy if you want to. Um, but it's like an intimate uh, intimate relationship that they're describing when they talk about it. It's like a sense of ownership that for, for Johnny and Chris, that Andy belongs to them. He's so like connected to them relationally that there's a sense in which he's not just a person who happens to be their brother, he's theirs. And John says that there's something similar to that going on in Jesus's relationship to the world. He says he came to that which was his own. The world is Jesus's. It's his world. God can talk about this world as our world. But there's a tragic irony which carries on into point five, which is that the world is blind. And so John says the world didn't recognize him. It's a pretty shocking idea, really, I think. If we imagine our Andy not recognizing his brother, if you've got brothers or sisters, imagine what it would be like if they just didn't recognize you. I think about people who maybe visit relatives with Alzheimer's or dementia, sitting at bedsides, not being recognized by the person who's part of their family. It's a, quite a painful situation. Why would it be that the world wouldn't be able to recognize Jesus, the one who owns it? But then also, somewhat, I ask myself, like, why is it that God is sometimes so inconspicuous? Why is it that God's sometimes so hard to see? Why is he not more obvious? I feel like God could be more obvious, if I'm honest, at times. And I don't know the answer to that question fully. One thing I do know is that I think God has chosen hiddenness as a way to develop intimacy, that a bit like a parent playing hide and seek with a kid. So we get to search for God. And as we search for him, we find him. Uh, we've got some friends who play hide and seek with their dad and they have this little extra rule, which is that they can, uh, they can say, give us a little peep. And then their dad kind of goes, peep. And then it's like they, they sort of heard him. So then they go and try and uh, find him. It's super cute. And there's something that happens like that in our relationship with God as well, that we can ask him and say, give us a little peep. Like, can I come and, can I come and find you? And so that's okay then, presumably. I don't know if it is because as John continues, the situation gets worse. Point six, the world is hostile. John doesn't just include in his passage that the world doesn't recognise Jesus. He also says it doesn't receive him. And you don't have to look very far in the gospel to find examples of how the world didn't receive Jesus. He was insulted, persecuted, whipped. Even from the moment of his birth, he had to be taken into exile in Egypt to escape Herod, who was murdering babies. 
The world is deeply hostile to Jesus. And tragically, the world is also really hostile now to Jesus' followers. In the last year alone, 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,110 churches or other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. It's unlikely that those things, as extreme as that, will happen to you. But it is important to know that the world is hostile to Jesus. And it can be hostile to Jesus' followers as well. The world is hostile. That was point six. I hope you're keeping up. Let's just take a, a moment. Uh, so the world is created, it's waiting and it's owned. It's this good thing that God has made ready to be in response to him. But it's also complicated. It's also blind and it's also hostile. That's the picture we find so far of the world. So is there any good news? I think there is. Number seven, let's do it. The world has Jesus. The world has Jesus. Verse 14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's a super famous verse. You might well have heard that before. And in this verse, John, the author, is referencing a book of the Old Testament called Exodus. We've had a little bit of a look at Genesis, which is the first book. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And in the story that John is referencing, Moses, who's the people's leader, is seeking advice from God. He's got this enormous job and he doesn't feel up to it on his own and so he needs God's help. And so what he does is he gets a tent and he heads outside the camp and he builds this tent and he calls it the tent of meeting. And when he needs advice or encouragement from God, he goes out and all the people watch him go. They're kind of terrified because this is quite an epic moment. He goes out and the cloud comes down and he gets to meet and speak to God in this tent. If you haven't booked for Focus next year, it's our church's holiday away. There's a little advert for you. You can meet with God in a tent and ask advice for your life. Book it in, let's do it. But in this passage, John is referencing this. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But the word he uses for made his dwelling, it doesn't literally mean made his dwelling. What it literally means is put up his tent. He says that the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and put up his tent among us. And so what he's saying really is that just in the same way that Moses, when he needed advice and encouragement from the Lord, could go out and encounter him, so that is what Jesus is doing for every person when he came. It's interesting to notice, I think, particularly that Moses built the tent for God, but in John's story, God builds the tent for us. And then John drives the point home. He continues the Exodus parallel, saying, we've seen his glory. And he's referencing another moment where Moses meets with God and he says, show me your glory. And God says, I can't, I can't do that uh, because if I show you like the fullness of who I am, if I show you that, you'll die. Do you remember when we talked about God being unthinkable a few weeks ago? God is unthinkable. If you, if you see his glory, he says, you'll die. That's how epic he is. But then radically, John says, 
No, no, no. In Jesus, we have seen God's glory. That unthinkable God is being made accessible, knowable to the world. And that means the world has a vision. That was point eight. Point nine, the world has a hope. One of the things I've often wondered is, why did Jesus come when he came? Like, why then? 2,025 years ago-ish, something like that. Why did God pick then to come? Presumably could have come earlier or later or something. I've heard various explanations for why that could have been, things to do with the Roman Empire and accessibility of roads and all of those sorts of things, which are not particularly interesting, uh, but I've read them anyway, and uh, haven't really satisfied this question. Why then? But I think almost it misses a bigger question, which is why did Jesus pick any moment at all? Like why not every moment or lots and lots of moments? Like why would you pick one moment? We all weren't there, so then do we miss out? Is that sort of the way it works? And why did God pick one particular place? Like why Bethlehem? What about all the other people who weren't in Bethlehem? Why, why one particular person in one particular place at one particular moment? Um, and the only thing I can think of really is that my understanding of God is that he often chooses one thing to bless everything. Let me give you some examples. He chooses humanity to bless creation. He chooses Israel and the church to bless humanity. So he chose Bethlehem to bless every town and village. He chose that moment, I think, somehow as a blessing to every moment. And he does this with people as well. Why has he chosen you? Why not somebody else? Why not everybody else? He has chosen you as a blessing for everybody else. It means that there's hope even 2,000 years later God has somehow chosen particular people in particular times and particular moments for the blessing of everybody. There's hope for the world because of God's choice. That was number nine. We've made it. Number 10, the world has a future. The world has a future. Last time I spoke, I spoke about one of my pet hates, uh, which is people saying things like, she's only human. I don't like that. Because it, it sounds like humanity is a bad thing, but it's not. But one of my other pet hates is when we talk about people dying and going to heaven, right? She died, she went to heaven, blah, blah, blah. And there's this idea that's been picked up in the church, which is that when we die, off we go, heaven or possibly hell. And then there's a moment where everybody will have died. And so presumably everybody will either be in heaven or hell. At that point, the world is sort of redundant. So then that's the end of that. Right? That familiar story, maybe? Uh, that's a pet hate of mine because I don't think it expresses what God is doing at Christmas. People say things like, Jesus is the way to heaven which might be sort of true, but I think it's not as such that Jesus is the way to God, more that in Jesus, God came to us. That's what he's doing. The end game of creation, the end thing that God is hoping for is not a world that's got rid of with everybody else away. It's that heaven, God comes to a new world, which he has created, recreated. And that means that the world is an important and valuable thing with a future, 
in uh, Jesus' body after his resurrection, he still had scars. I don't know if you remember that. He had holes in his hands. I think it might be possible that that would be true of the world as well. That there could be things that happen now that affect the world into the future, into the new creation which God remakes. I don't know exactly what happens when people die. I don't know if they just sort of rest for a while and then something happens. I don't know if there is a kind of temporary heaven experience or something like that. But what I do know is that there is a moment in which God will recreate the whole of creation. And that means the world has a future. And at that point, it's our inheritance from him, a gift. It's a much more compelling vision, I think, because it means that the world matters now and things that we do in the world matter now. That's point 10, the world has a future. You made it, well done. (laughs) The question then, I think, is what does that all mean for us? Lots and lots of different things about the world, listed, you know, created, waiting, owned, complicated, blind, hostile, has Jesus a vision, a hope and a future. But what about me? What would that mean for us? What sort of implications would that actually have? Well, I think the answer is that all of those things which are true for the world, they're also true for you. That God is taking the whole of creation, and that means you, on a journey. You're owned and created. You're waiting for God's response. You're unfortunately blind and complicated and hostile at times. But you also have Jesus. You also have a hope and a future and a vision. And so you can know that same story and journey You can know that God has an intentional purpose for you and for the whole of the world and that can radically transform the way you live. And it starts, I think, by by praying and asking God to show us our place in that world and in that journey. So that's what we're going to do now. If you want to stand, let's pray. We're just going to take a moment just to wait. If there's a bit of noise from kids or whatever, that's absolutely fine. But we're just going to take a moment to wait and ask God's presence, that's the Holy Spirit, to come and just to meet with us and to show us what of this morning is for us and what's for someone else. So let's pray that oldest prayer of the church. Come Holy Spirit and fill every person here right now. Come, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence now. And Lord, just begin to speak to people and to meet with people.